Hello, this is Hardin Coleman, faculty director for the Center for Character and Social Responsibility at Boston University's Wheelock College of Education and Human Development. You're listening to the very first season of Caring, Character, and Community, the Center's podcast. In this season, we will focus on learning from leaders about how they integrate the ethic of caring, they focus on their own and others' character development, and a commitment to serving the needs of the community in order to guide and inform their leadership decisions in times of crisis. A major part of the CCSR's mission is to facilitate conversations among educators, community organizers, and engaged citizens around the challenges of creating conditions in our schools and communities that will allow all our children to flourish. This is part three of our inaugural season, which will focus on bringing you the perspective of four youth-serving community-based organizations. Today's episode, we'll be talking with one of my longtime friends, Will Parrish, who is a credentialed public high school science educator with a 30-year record of innovative accomplishments in environmental and educational fields. He taught environmental science at Gateway High School in San Francisco and now serves on the board. He served on the California State Board of Education's Curriculum Commission and then founded 10 Strands as a nonprofit organization to support California's effort to bring environmental literacy to all K-12 students in the state. In our work, we talk a lot about system change. It is what Will does. So Will, we want to thank you for spending time with us. Well, you're welcome, Hardin, and I'm I'm delighted to and and honored to be a part of this uh, amazing community. So uh, thank you for inviting me. So could you tell us a little bit more about your organization? And then also, how's this year, the past uh, 18 months now been for you all? Mm-hmm. Right. So um, my organization is called Ten Strands, and um, uh, I established Ten Strands and immediately formed a partnership with our CEO, Karen Cow, uh, who has uh, been completely instrumental in helping uh, shape the future. Because what we really set out to do was, well, I put it like this. We're the tugboat that works with the California Department of Ed to help the, tug, to help the uh, super tanker uh, move toward the bountiful waters of environmental literacy. <laughs> so people seem to get what 10 Strands does if I start that way, because then it, it puts the organization in the role of supporting the whole public school system to embrace environmental literacy. So what does that mean? It means creating a, the conditions under which in the classroom and outside the classroom, students can reimagine their relationship to the natural environment and appreciate the absolute interdependence that humanity has with the natural world. Um, So that's really what what 10 Strands is set up to do. Um, Our three pillars that we're based on involve advocacy, so changing the laws and changing the frameworks, uh, capacity building, uh, helping county offices of ed to see the importance of an environmental literacy specialist on the staff, <laughs> um, and then um, you know, network strengthening. So it's a, it's a huge collaborative effort. Um, and 10 Strands uh, set up, well, we became the operators of a, an, uh, a network of 30 individuals at the highest levels of the county offices of ed, districts, and uh, schools, and thought leaders. Uh, to really make sure that what 10 Strands is doing at the policy level is grounded in the truth of what actually works in the classroom. 
Uh, and I often think back to, to my classroom experience in terms of thinking, you know, will that policy actually help teachers? Mm-hmm. Uh, and Karen has had experience teaching as well. So these last 18 months, I'll say, the, the, the school system went from being all in-person and hands-on to being practically all distance learning and hands-off. Um, and that presented some real challenges uh, uh, for students who needed to do their, their studying and their classrooms in the conditions that they find in the place where they live. Mm-hmm. And um, not all kids live in circumstances that support academic focus. Uh, and those who are lucky enough to live in circumstances that are academically oriented, they got ahead. And, and it's completely inequitable in terms of what happens to the students um, who don't have uh, the supportive academic setting at home. Uh, and one of the things that um, we tried to do at 10 Strands was to figure out how, how can we help bridge that that equity gap. Uh, and we've, uh, we teamed up with uh, a couple of organizations who focused on the same issue and realized that, well, if we could open up more space around the schools to act as additional classroom space, we could bring more kids back to the campus uh, and reduce that equity gap. And so the idea, uh, we called it the Outdoor Learning Initiative, and we teamed up with Green Schoolyards America, Lawrence Hall of Science, and the San Mateo County Office of Ed, and created uh, a whole community where outdoor education uh, became like plan A. Uh, and plan B was, you know, bring the kids inside. Um, it took off. And yeah. in, in 2020, you know, uh, articles all over the country, 40 different articles, 100 20 or something now have written about the idea uh, of, of using outdoor classroom space to, to enhance learning. Yeah. So that's, that's, that was the big pivot that we did for that year. Mm-hmm. So, Will, you know, uh, people, when they look us up, will know that I, I serve on, on, on your advisory board as well. And, you know, a lot of conversations around environmental literacy and environmental groups often point to the incredible whiteness of mm-hmm. those organizations, and, and, and yours is, you know, a probably white organization as well. Um, but you, more than a year ago, made a pivot to centering equity and social justice and access for all, opportunities for all, into your work. What led you to that moment? And, um, and how, you know, how do you encourage others in the environmental uh, movement to be focused on those issues of equity as well? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think um, realizing realizing the huge disparity in the uh, racial ethnicity of teachers versus students in California uh, was one of the key motivating factors. As as you say, um, the the teaching well the teaching profession is vastly white in its uh, in its ethnicity. And for kids to be coming to school and not seeing anybody in the entire school that looks like them has a, um, uh, an impact on them where they can't imagine themselves maybe in that, in that same role. So um, we started down the path of equity inclusion and inclusion training mm-hmm. uh, and teamed up with uh, uh, an organization called Youth Outside, 
recently changed its name to Justice Outside uh, and had hour-long sessions every other week with our whole staff to uncover our own implicit biases uh, because the work really starts you know, inside before, at least for me, before I can fully appreciate, um, you know, others really empathize with others' perspectives, um, realizing I can never live in somebody else's shoes, but I can certainly uh, be understanding and curious and ask questions and learn about others' perspectives. Um, that training has continued to uh, a six-week course that we're currently in, three hours every week uh, with the National Equity Project. And, um, this work of understanding equity, uh, both the core of it, how, how it is um, greatly affected by the history of systemic e education uh, and how it works day in day-to-day -day lives um, is, is crucial to making sure that we can give all students the opportunity to become environmentally literate. Mm -hmm. um, so, and we've, we've internalized it as well. So now our staff, um, we, are, uh, we are more diverse than white. We have five people of color and, and four white people, mm -hmm. uh, four people in the North and five people in the South of California. And so that the perspective that we gain from people with different lived experiences inform um, education policy, our thinking about our work in this world uh, in, in crucial ways that, that connect with the broader population uh, than what's traditionally been the case, to your point, in, in, environmental, in the environmental field. That's, that's, that's so exciting to watch you take a leadership role in that area. And so the other question, the next question I have is, so how does care and being caring play into your decision making? And if you can give an example of that, that'd be wonderful. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so in my, in my decision-making, I'm thinking about, you know, huh, what can 10 strands do in the areas where students need, um, need something the most, right? And to me, um, caring is about teaching, uh, you know, the stewardship, stewardship of oneself, stewardship of one's community, stewardship of the environment in that community and in the, in the broader uh, context. Um, uh, care to me means, you know, what do teachers need? Um, and so when you, when you combine it all to students, teachers, community and environment, um, that's the confluence of all of the, of the, of the areas that, that we focus on uh, and where we try to influence policy to make, uh, to, to, to put into motion either budget allocations or legislation that, that supports student-centered equity uh, education. Um, so the example that I would give would be um, what happened in March of 2020. I referred a moment ago to the Outdoor Learning Initiative and uh, the, the fact that we pivoted from our work of environmental literacy policy level in California to really caring about what was needed in the moment. Um, our CEO, Karen, uh, uh, noticed this huge opportunity and huge gap. And so we jumped in um, and did everything we could to try to make the schools safe for kids to come back by using the outdoors, as I explained earlier. 
so that would be a specific example of, of where we pivoted through, uh, through caring. Can you give me an example of where one has been challenged, where, where, where putting an ethic of caring and, as you use the word, stewardship as a guiding principle by adhering to those principles that it wasn't as effective or, or it was challenged or didn't work as well as you would have liked? I'm, I'm feeling challenged right now, Harden, mm -hmm. um, because I, I think it is absolutely so, so sad that there are students who are deciding not to have kids mm -hmm. because of their despair over what they hear about climate change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what they're hearing about climate change is coming through the media and the media aren't isn't, you know, they're not scientists. Mm -hmm. uh, and the media isn't set up to um, educate, you know, people. It's set up with different, you know, corporate goals, which are perfectly appropriate. The problem, the, the despair that I feel is where, where kids just soak in whatever they're learning from online or through the media as fact. And, and as, oh my God, it, it's really, there's nothing we can do. Um, and so learning about the connection to the environment and then sort of taking apart some of the claims that are made in the media is a great basis for critical thinking mm -hmm. uh, and for producing curiosity. Gee, is that a fact or is that an opinion? Yeah. If it's an opinion, you know, what, What's the source of the evidence for that opinion? Same, same question can be asked of the fact. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you start peeling it away, um, you, you realize, well, I realized when I was a teacher and I'm seeing it now that, that not only do we have to give the opportunity for learning in schools, but we have to give the opportunity for unlearning <laughs> because we have to unlearn, the students need to unlearn some of the things that they're learning mm -hmm. through the media. Mm -hmm. Right. And so if you take a look at some of the claims uh, that have been made um, throughout, you know, since 1970 about, you know, the world is going to end in the next 10 or 15 years. Well, it hasn't happened yeah. and it's yeah. not likely to happen. And so I, I wish to bring into the, the, the thinking, gee, what do some of the great scientists say about where we are? And everybody says it's dire. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But then we have people like E.O. Wilson. Uh, Edward O. Wilson, one of the greatest biologists in the world, who in his book, uh, The Meaning of Human Existence, mm -hmm. digs into, we can't be, have, have despair and hope to get out of this. We need innovation and we need creativity. And the best place for those feelings and, and, and initiatives to come through, um, let, me, let me restate that, the worst place is to try to get at them through fear mm -hmm. and through being scared. Yeah. Um, and then, then there are folks like Paul Hawken, one of my heroes, uh, who wrote Drawdown, and now he's just finished a new book called Regeneration. And it's all about the steps that all humans can take, corporations can take, legislations can take to adapt and mitigate to climate change. Because no matter what we do, the CO2 in the atmosphere, this, this thickening blanket is, is there to stay for quite a long time. We are going to have some warming. <laughs> And so we have two challenges, and that is to bring an opportunity to learn about, well, how are we going to adapt to that? And how are we going to mitigate mm -hmm. it from getting any worse than it can? 
right? And there are loads of opportunities there. There's a lot of excitement around um, uh, all industries, uh, supply chain management, uh, water usage, um, energy usage, uh, that that will that will slow down the worst impacts of climate change and um, give students a, a, well all of us uh, a, a reason to be optimistic about the future. Even have now, hope. Today, you use the phrase "relearn," and but I just want to capture that you didn't then go on to talk about facts. You produced a way of thinking and addressing problems. Mm-hmm moving from kind of a fact-based or, or an information-based decision, someone told me this or I saw that, to more of a critical analysis, uh, more of a where's the evidence? How can I think about this? Mm-hmm. What are other people say? How can I take other perspectives before I come to my opinion? Mm-hmm. So is that is that kind of the process that as you think of yourself as a science educator that you want to help promote within our schools and within our youth? Even, yes, and even more than as... Uh, just a science, I don't mean just a science educator, but the thing that that Dr. Wilson said in his book was, we're not going to really achieve our greatest potential for success until the humanities and the science come together. Mm-hmm. Not exactly in a marriage, but in a collaboration. Mm-hmm. Because there are facts which exist in indigenous knowledge uh, that science hasn't gotten around to prove yet, yeah. and, and maybe won't prove, but it doesn't mean they're false. Um, and so there's a huge, uh, uh, vast amount of storytelling that contains very important, crucial information about humans' relationship to the environment. Mm-hmm. So, so this appalls me, but in California, um, which is where my expertise is, and I'm not uh, sure about the rest of the nation, but science gets taught in middle school eight minutes a week on average. It is absurd. And some places get up to an, a whole hour. Mm-hmm. Um, it is uh, science, let alone in environmental science. Um, and so we at 10 Strands uh, have realized that the, the, the basis for focusing on the environment is much more than just science. Mm-hmm. And so in California, we took the approach, well, how can we give students an opportunity to learn in every single subject about a connection through the environment. So, so the environment becomes the connective tissue mm-hmm. amongst all the different subjects. Mm-hmm. And so over a consistent uh, um, six year period, uh, 10 Strands was invited to help edit each of the frameworks. You can think of them as hoops that publishers have to jump through in order for their material to be adopted in California. Mm -hmm. And so in each subject now, there is a section about some lesson plans need to be taught through an environmental lens. Now, it's not specific about exactly what, um, leaving creativity and and curiosity, uh, uh, both on the publisher side, but also then on the teacher side as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in California, we're, we're achieving this sense that um, connection through the environment to the core subjects uh, is, is a great way to increase students' awareness of the interrelationship uh, between the student and the environment. And it's much more than just the scientific awareness yeah. of the connection. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in, in, in my work with you, you've convinced me that if we're going to have a fundamental discipline around which 
we can integrate everything, environmental science would be a great place to start. Mm-hmm. It is so integrated. You put it can bring science, it can bring humanities, it can bring arts, it can bring uh, physical activity, and that you can really coordinate a whole child's learning organized around learning their place in the environment and, and how valuable that would be and, and engaging in many ways. Can I give just a, two very quick examples? Great, great, please. Yeah. So in California, of course, we have the gold rush. Um, and until recently, it wasn't routinely taught that it had a huge impact on the environment and uh, results in mercury being in our San Francisco Bay, polluting the shellfish. And that's why we can't eat the shellfish in San Francisco. Right. So there's a historical environmental connection that, that, that students find fascinating. Um, and then um, there are examples of uh, teachers not knowing what to focus on in, um, in their environment to um, bring kids closer to a subject. So, so in science, um, a teacher discovered that at one time before the school had been paved over, there was a little frog that lived there. And so she said to her fifth grade science students, let's go out and see if we can see the frog this winter. And so as the rains came, they, they actually found a little pool that had some baby frogs in it. And, and the, the class adopted the frogs, the school adopted the frogs. Um, the, there was a great effort to clean up the school, no more pollution. What about the little frogs? And, yeah, yeah, um, yep. and the science behind it and hydrologic science and, and the history and where to come from and yeah. <laughs> all of this sort of stuff. Um, maybe I would have gone past 10th grade biology if I had had that type of <laughs> yeah. engagement. But on a shift, you know, when, when you think about character, that's one of the, one of the um, uh, principles that we, we, we think a lot about here at the center. What does that mean to you? And how do you see it playing in your role in decision-making as a leader? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. <clears throat> so <clears throat> character, um, character has so many different elements to it in terms of, uh, you know, what it means to individuals from honesty to integrity to, um, you know, having a, a caring and, and, um, loving attitude toward fellow human beings uh, and keeping your word and all of those things, which are super important. Mm-hmm. Um, so to me, I, I, I focus more on the caring aspect through the word of stewardship. And I think, what am I doing with my, you know, X number of decades on life? <laughs> How can I steward my resources uh, in a way that, um, <clears throat> that, that feels good to me, but frankly, um, and that, what I've decided is, you know, I want to use those resources to see if we can get the education system, you know, to increase this idea of stewardship that we all have mm-hmm. for each other, for our communities, and ultimately my personal interest is for the environment. Yeah. Um, but, but the caring element of stewardship, um, if you can create a sense of, of this curiosity and, and agency ownership over uh, decisions that you can actually make, well, then stewardship becomes embedded in the sense of character uh, to, to take care of something, somebody, some places outside yourself, in addition to, to taking care of, you know, of your own self. Um, so, I, yeah, I, that's... So, so as a leader, then, you, when you make the decision for your organization, for your own personal decisions about life, is it, is, 
Do you organize that? How can this decision help steward and improve quality of living within our environment, in relationship to our environment, within our environment? And that that becomes a guiding principle in terms of, if you can answer that question in the positive, you're ready to go. If you can't, you're going to wait until you can figure it out. Yeah, I, for me, it starts with, with empathy or empathizing mm-hmm. and asking questions. Um, character and, and this development of a stewardship idea doesn't come in from somebody coming in and saying, hey, you have to be stewards, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, it has to do with asking questions and asking, you know, well, what, what do students need uh, to have a, uh, a better learning environment? Uh, what do districts and what do principals uh, need? And if you, can, if you can ask those questions and be invited into a conversation mm-hmm. um, about what those needs are and have an opportunity to um, apply some of the stewardship through the environmental lens concept, um, there's a chance that it will stick and resonate. And there's also a chance that it won't. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's, it's our, I believe it's our, job to create the opportunity to understand what it is when when we say a stewardship of the environment can improve students' lives in the classroom, outside the classroom, in the community. Uh, Here's some evidence where it's worked, Mm -hmm. and here's some evidence where it's been really challenging, and uh, can we help you, uh, teacher, principal, superintendent of a district or county office of ed? You know, Will, one of the things as I listen to, I'm struck with the, an idea that I want to sh- share. So we think that the character is not something necessarily you have. I mean, you may have character. We all have different characteristics. But that's something you have. It's something you do. That character is an active agent. How do you take your values perspective into the world to, stu- to use the word steward um, our world? And that's an active, not a passive event. That's something one has. It's something one does. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's right. Yeah, I, I like I like that distinction um, because that the old cliche actions speak louder than words sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's easy to talk about um, intentions and and make promises, um, but as we look to what a person's character really is, it's much less about what they say and and observing and, and assessing their actions yeah i mean mm-hmm. even kenny talks about racism not necessarily being something something you are you're not a racist racism mm-hmm. is something we do mm-hmm. and it's, mm-hmm. it's the policies we enact it's behavior we represent and it's not an intentions to be good or bad or as significant as what you actually do and the impact and understanding that and responding mm-hmm. because we all make errors we all make mistakes mm-hmm. responding is really critical so in, in terms of, you know, one of the challenges in all our work is in your work, you have lots of constituents, you know, politicians, community, superintendents, kids, other people in the environmental uh, community. So how do you manage uh, the uh, and balance your commitments to these multiple constituents? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is this is our sense. This is our, we think this is part of what building communities is about. You talk mm-hmm. about collaborating with a number of groups, uh, working together. But you know, in terms of balancing the competing needs, how, how, mm-hmm. that, how do you approach that challenge? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, I think the first step is to realize that I don't have the answers for the right balance for anybody mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, or any institution. Um, I think what, um, 
I think what, I haven't quite talked about it this way, I don't think, but um, 10 strands in this notion of being a tugboat, um, there's also a notion of, of um, being a catalyst and a convener. Um, and we help, we, we create the conditions where communities of practice can form. Mm -hmm. and, and we do this, we specifically started six, five or six years ago uh, with an organization that's now called the California Environmental Literacy Initiative. Mm -hmm. And um, we manage this partnership um, with, with 30 different people, all these different constituencies, uh, not having answers, <laughs> but putting the, the container in place where people can come in and populate the container, mm -hmm. find similar interests and um, uh, develop communities of practice. So we have um, several sort of uh, working groups we call innovation hubs. And there's an innovation hubs for county offices of ed, one for professional learning, another for curriculum and, and several others. Um, and we help bring in uh, speakers or materials, but more than that, we we offer up the 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 intelligence, the character, uh, all of the, uh, the you know all of the aspects that that your institution you know promotes and advances. We let all of that surface in a way of helping people connect in areas. Um, where, where they're similar and where they're different and can learn from each other from those, mm -hmm. from those differences. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so I would say so balancing the, you know, the, the different constituencies is really something that, that happens innately and, and um, uh, in a way that, that maybe, maybe we're putting out the scale or something and then it operates on its own. <laughs> you know, you described something that's very hard to pull off and you, you, you did it gracefully and, and it's working. So what do you think you and your organizations, I know that you, you, you're very aware that you, you have a team approach and you're collaborating with your team as you're actually reaching out to collaborate with others. What would you say are some of the core um, either values and or behaviors that you all consistently demonstrate that people then come back for more? Because you know, mm. you know we, all can, we can all give a great workshop with a good speaker, with good and uh, a one-shot show. Everyone feels mm. good, but not everyone comes back to stay engaged. People are coming mm -hmm. back to stay engaged with you. What do you mm -hmm. think here? Do what you and your team are doing to facilitate that ongoing engagement? Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm. Well, there's a certain part of authenticity. I think that that helps, uh, which is, you know, we authentically don't want to be at the center. 10 strand, you won't hear anything about 10 strands this or 10 strands that in terms of, you know, rah, rah, 10 strands. Because for us, everything at the center has to be about the mission. Mm -hmm. And the mission can be developed and molded best by collaborative efforts with the minds uh, and the hearts and the souls of, of people uh, throughout, uh, throughout the state. And so the idea is to you know, kind of leave the egos at the door. Mm -hmm. uh, what are we here for? We're here for the students mm -hmm. uh, and to improve the system. How can we do that? It's not about advancing your own personal agenda. Mm -hmm. and, and people mm -hmm. get that. And so they, they, people don't come in and say, oh God, I gotta listen to that. 
again. Yeah. Um, and and nor do if if you if you were to come in and listen to the amount of time that the leaders of the um, a Cali meeting speak, I think you'd be surprised at at, at the balance between oh. Karen and, and the other executive committee leaders only spoke this much and all the committee members spoke that much. Um, so there's a nice, there's a nice way about that. And then uh, I, we always, well, hold on. I can't say that. Um, there are two quick things. We, we, I push for the idea of conversations happen best with a, with a yes and uh, approach rather than the yes, but approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's a general sense about that in this, in this Cali. And so ideas come up and when you have a yes and approach, people are much more willing to come out with an idea, even if it's not an idea that, you know, floats everybody's boat. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yep. And, and so you can get to some really good places that way. Um, and then there's another piece about, we encourage people to look for other people with whom to collaborate. So where is somebody in this hub doing something that somebody in this hub could actually benefit from? So there's lots of conversations that happen as a result of people connecting, mm-hmm. you know, through the, through the Cali meeting. Yeah. You know, in our world, we hear a lot about how businesses get created with collaboration and working together and, and finding strengths and reorganizing people's strengths. And I'm not sure we hear as much about that in the, not-for-profit social mm-hmm. service world. But you just gave a great, great uh, example of how that openness to collaboration, other people hold truths more than, than equal and powerful truths regardless of their background, and that how do we steward these relationships on an ongoing basis? And if one can maintain, I'm hearing you say, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm hearing you say that as one can maintain that stance, that set of values, and authentically behave in congruence with those values, that's when people start to come together, find a sense of collaboration, and, 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 and feel that power of the group to move forward. Mm-hmm. Am I capturing what your, your, your experience? Or? Yeah, yeah, really well, Harden. And I would um, add on to that, that the relationship with the funding community um, is an important um, factor. So if you think of the for-profit world, people respond to the quality of the product by their purchasing it or their service by purchasing it or not purchasing it. There's the Mm -hmm. direct relationship in the nonprofit world. That's not the case. People, the the ones who provide the money aren't purchasers of the services. Mm -hmm. The ones who provide the money are the readers of the reports by the people that provide the services. And the funders typically look for differentiation. You know, how is your organization doing something that's slightly different than this organization, right? Um, and there's a movement that's afoot now uh, uh, called um, uh, trust philanthropy, mm-hmm. um, where funders are um, given an opportunity to let the community decide how best to use the money that's been defined to fix a particular purpose. Uh, and it's a different way of philanthropy. And I'm, I'm seeing it um, more and more. And as that funder shift happens, collaboration becomes easier because people aren't, you know, trying to hang on to what their essential identity is that the foundation needs to fund as opposed to, you know, your organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, when you, when you listen to the other podcasts well, that we'll be putting up, there's a Mosaic Hockabin and you speak the same language, doing a very different problem. Uh, Very different ecology. Uh-huh. But that uh-huh. idea of, you know, hearing local voice, 
collaboration network is central to the movement forward. And that funders need to get in that boat with us, mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. hold the stick in the short term. That's to right. That. They really have to say, okay, how do we collaborate with you to yeah. get these, these outcomes that we share? Right. So, Will, thanks so much for your time. But before I let you go, mm-hmm. I want to hear, get a sense of, if you could go and say something to your younger self when you were starting out on this pathway, and because you've had an, enough of uh, a, a variety of these issues, you can pick which younger self you want to talk to. <laughs> what advice would you give uh, give him? I think the first would be um, uh, build coalitions and collaborate. Um, in my first bit of my career, I, I was interested in, um, I had much more ego involved. And so I was interested in making a name for myself, having a successful business, uh, you know, alternative energy. Um, and, and the second falls right onto that, which is uh, team up with a partner who has complementary skills <laughs> um, and, and really look for that type of partnership and, and be rigorous in, in the analysis of, you know, don't turn to your friend or, uh, you know, try to, try to find a really strong, be honest about what skills somebody could enhance through a partnership, <laughs> put yeah. it that way. <laughs> well, two, there's two sides that will be, be, be honest and clear about what you're good at. Yes, yeah. And don't need to replicate. And then the areas in which through partnership, what, you're not, what aren't your strengths and, yeah. and foci would be complement to make a better team. That's right. Exactly right. Yep. Um, and then this one I've mentioned before, you know, it's not about ego, it's about the mission. And I would uh, keep that in mind. And then I would say, you know, when the going gets rough, um, practice joyous persistence. Um, that's, that's the key thing that uh, keeps me going now and, and could have maybe changed my trajectory at an earlier age, but uh, who knows and who really cares. I'm happy where I am now, mm-hmm. but it's the joyous persistence as opposed to, you know, being persistent because, you know, you're going to prove something or, or out of entitlement that, that it must be this way or whatever, but, you know, cause your perspective isn't going to be, my perspective isn't going to be the perspective that a County office of ed person has mm-hmm. my, nobody's going to have my perspective. And so if I can joyously persist in explaining and listening and understanding if there's, you know, something that both of us can collaborate and work together with, that's great. And I, I, it's not my timeline, yeah. right? It's the timeline that works for both parties. And so to be joyous with however long that takes in whatever direction it takes, because ultimately life's a journey. And if we can be, jo- if I can be joyful as I go down my journey of life, it's more fun <laughs> for me. Well, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate this. And we really uh, deeply admire the work that you're doing and, and, and the ways in which you've created a network that's moving, that, that, the network that's got that tugboat that's moving, uh, a <laughs> very difficult organization called PK-12 Education, forward in the interest of the kids. So thank you very, very much. No, you're very welcome, Harden. And thank you for the opportunity uh, to, to be with you. And I can't wait to see you soon. Great, great. You take okay. care. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, you too.
Thank you for listening to Caring, Character, and Community, the podcast of the Center for Character and Social Responsibility at Boston University's Wheelock College of Education and Human Development. The development of this podcast is made possible with the generous support from the BU's Wheelock College of Education and Human Development and a grant from the Kern Family Foundation. Thanks also to Lizzie Barquet for her editorial and production work on this podcast. The music you're, listening, you're hearing is Bluesy Vise by Doug Maxwell, produced by Media Right Productions. I'm Hardin Coleman, and thank you so much for listening.